This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The partial government shutdown might soon impact one aspect of Wall Street, the IPO market. The Securities and Exchange Commission has been partially closed, which means that companies planning to list shares on the stock market this month have to delay their plans, at least for now. It isn't unprecedented for no initial public offerings in January, but in the past, it was due to market factors and led to weak years for IPOs in general. With more on this story, we are joined here in studio by David Zaring, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. And joining us on the phone, James Cox, who is a law professor at Duke University, who specializes in corporate and securities law. David, Happy New Year. Great to see you. Thank you for coming in. It's great to be here. Jim, great to have you with us today. Happy New Year to you. Happy as well to be here to well. Thank you. So, uh, Jim, first let's start out with this idea of the issue of the SEC being cut back so much and how this specifically could impact these companies that want to try and list in January. Well, <laughs> I don't think they're going to be making IPOs. I mean, uh, you know, the SEC on its website has made very clear that uh, companies who want to file a registration statement can do so, and they'll become effective in 20 days unless they're one of those companies that's allowed to be, uh, be, go effective immediately, so-called uh, well-known season issuers. Um, that doesn't help the IPO firms at all because they all are, want to go through a process in which the staff of the SEC gives close attention uh, and, and comments on the, the filed first draft of the registration statements. This is just part and parcel of culture that's existed at the SEC and in financial markets for now um, 80-some years. And the, the consequence of, of, of not getting that feedback from the SEC, which is quite extensive, and these things can be anywhere from 15 to 25 pages, single-space reviews, having comments back. They're so-called comfort letters. They're called comfort letters for a reason, and that is because they give the IPO company uh, looking to go to market comfort uh, and having another pair of eyes, or actually many pairs of expertise eyes, look over the presentation of information and clarify things. If an IPO, uh, my hypothesis has always been that if an IPO went public without a uh, close review by the SEC in compliance with uh, at least one round, and several times, or many times, or two or three rounds of these comfort letter review processes with the SEC staff, that that's almost a invitation on their registration statement to say, uh, almost like sue me, that is kick me, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, at least that's how I think it would be read by the perhaps uh, well uh, by by the aggressive class action uh, plaintiff bar. Um, it's just an invitation. So I, um, I I think this really has just minimally screwed up the schedules of the Airbnbs and Ubers of the world, um, uh, but more than likely. As you push the process further into 2019, we always have already are seeing the headwinds for the economy uh, slowing down each quarter is what's being predicted, that it makes it less and less likely that this is going to be the market window that the Ubers of the world are going to climb through to become public companies. And, and Jim, so companies that fall into this realm, you mentioned Airbnb and Uber, uh, assuming that they don't have an opportunity to list in January, they would consider to back up till when normally? Is, is the adjustment made on a month-to-month basis or quarter-to-quarter? 
Well, you know, the decision's going to be made uh, by when the SEC gets back in business. But, right. you, know, they, you know, it's too late for them to do it in, in January. They haven't filed a registration statement. They haven't gone through this process. Uh, you know, the registration statement, even on the best of things, can never become effective until there's 20 uh, days that have expired. That's what Section 8A, unless the SEC accelerates. There's nobody to accelerate right now. Um, so uh, the result of this, as I, th- I think, I think it, we're dangerously at the point of thinking they couldn't be even can contemplate this happening until I would think April or May at the earliest of wow. hitting the markets. And God knows what the markets going to look like in uh, April, May. David. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's a real constraint for these companies. Um, I was just looking to see just how how bad the furlough was with at the SEC, and uh, you know they've got four thousand four hundred employees, and um, uh, only two hundred and eighty five of them are on the job, including nobody from <laughs> uh, corporate finance, uh, the division of corporate finance, which is the division that would, re- or almost nobody, who, which would review these IPO and um, you know small company uh, A one forms that they uh, need reviewed if they want to go public, or at least if they want to go public without you know taking huge risks. Um, and it's also the longest time, I think, that the SEC has ever been shut down. In prior government shutdowns, um, the SEC's had some access to emergency funding of its own, which has meant that um, it could keep operating even while other government agencies uh, couldn't. And um, that is not the case uh, this time. So uh, so it looks like it's a, a real constraint um, for new public offerings. And, um, you know, last year was uh, it looked like this might be a good year for public offerings, but boy, the the stock market's been going crazy, and um, we've already seen the um, CEO of Uber saying that you know they've got a strong balance sheet, so they don't need to go public this year. Uh, all of that suggests that there could be a delay ahead. So, how does this potentially impact Wall Street, especially as you said, because of the volatility that we've already seen over the last few months? Well, it's definitely not good news for uh, you know bankers who uh, can help companies go public and want to steer them through, and lawyers, I guess, who who can steer them through the process. Um, yeah. Those people will be uh, new companies anyway. Will be um, you know unable to do their jobs, um, and so it's not just government officials, but also um, uh, you know the the um, Wall Street um, law firms and investment banks that um, help facilitate this process. And those guys are going to have to wait until the agency opens before they can, you know, keep trying to get companies to go public. And then, you know, companies may be skittish about doing so. Jim, that's that's probably the other part of the story that probably not a lot of people have talked about is are, are the the businesses that are around this that are impacted as well, especially the banks, the investment banks, that uh, this is a, a good piece of their business that they have and they expect to have uh, month to month throughout the course of every year. Yeah, so I, I just to echo a little bit what David was saying, that these are uh, – an IPO going public is, uh, first of all, a, a, a labor-intensive activity, and so there's and, and it's a very profitable activities. Uh, the investment banks care and care a lot about the IPO market because they make their, their biggest among their biggest profit margin areas is the fees that they generate through uh, placing. Uh, and playing their underwriting functions. And then there's lawyers involved, accountants are involved, et cetera. So, you know, it, it's labor-intensive, and it's at a very high market rate per hour. And so that's money into the economy that's not happening right now. 
But let me just say something else here, and that is that these are liquidity events. That is, somebody already owns billions of dollars of Uber and Airbnb, and not to mention uh, so many uh, unicorns. And these are liquidity events that have been looked for that that uh, for the various funds that have been advancing the venture capital funds that have stakes in those who are then anxious to realize the cash and re- value of their investments and then redeploy that cash so that money doesn't just get go away it gets redeployed into different places and so by the shutdown you've essentially uh, you know have a juggernaut that's happened that prevents the flow of cash. So there's a double whammy, not only to the economy, a double whammy in first, not having the fees being generated that can then be redeployed in the economy by people buying that second home, for example, or another car or whatever uh, market intermediaries spend their money on. But you have the money not being redeployed by the venture capital firms into other activities that could then become the future Uber or the future future Airbnb. So you're slowing that down because that cash is all tied up. You say, oh, of course, you could probably resell these securities that you have in Uber, which is is a private company, but you're going to resell them at a discount. The reason people want to have the Public, the Ubers and Airbnbs go public is that it removes some of the friction, some of the drag that happens in selling a security that of a non-public company. You're going to be able to sell it at less of a discount because um, and, you know, otherwise at a higher price. So it has a twin effect, and, it, and, and it's a measurable effect on the economy. If this shutdown goes a uh, a significant amount of time, Jim, then we could be looking at having very few IPOs actually occur in 2019. Correct? This this shutdown, you know, I've said at the beginning, and I have just my impression. If we start entering the third week of the shutdown, which we're coming up like that, that we're going to see a noticeable impact on the economy, and all huh. those headwinds we thought that we saw earlier. Are going to then be uh, moved forward. So this this it makes it more likely that the economy will slow down at a more pronounced rate than uh, what was initially suggested, and it's bad news. It's 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 certainly not good for the American economy. David, I'll, I'll just add to that that um, you know the real businesses that are uh, are going to be paying the tax um, from the shutdown, at least with regard to the SEC, are the sort of startups or the startups that are going public, the kind of new entrepreneurial businesses that we think um, – you know, are the you know the the potential bright spots of the economy? It's it's possible that this will hit the tech industry particularly hard because Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and the rest of them can't can't go public until the SEC reopens. And um, uh, you know, those are always thought to be economic bright spots for the uh, in, in the country. And um, uh, you know, it's really going to slow that process down for them. But when you look at at having the SEC, as you mentioned, having so few employees actually active right now. Not necessarily just in the IPO market, but as a whole, what impact is having the SEC basically shut down right now mean for the United States? It's also going to be hard to get um, uh, enforcement actions going. So you worry about um, you know securities fraud. Certainly, investigations are going to slow to a trickle. The the two hundred eighty five employees left. Um, are largely engaged in uh, law enforcement activities or to protect life or property. So a lot of them are, you know, sort of, uh, you know, 
security guards. Um, uh, uh, the SEC does have the power to bring enforcement actions. Um, Edgar, the filing system for existing filers, is still open. Mm -hmm. So they can continue to update the markets with uh, what's going on in already publicly traded companies. Um, but uh, you do worry at some point um, that you know the cops on the beat uh, can't stay on the beat. Um, and that is clearly a big problem. The largest division in the SEC is the enforcement division. And while it's not sort of shut down like corporate finance, it's uh, it's down to the very barest of bones. Jim? Yeah, and I think it points out a frailty not only of the political system, but also our regulatory system. The fact that you could have the world's largest economy uh, have its financial regulator out of business that sends a great deal of nervousness, uh, not just uh, abroad, but certainly locally, about where you want to do and place market deals. Uh, capital markets around the world are very com are competitors of one another. It would make you think that maybe what you'd want to do is say to hell with going public in the United States. We'll just sell this security in the London market. And therefore, you start taking jobs out of America, and you start putting them in London or Frankfurt or Hong Kong or some other place, which are now increasingly looking to be a hell of a lot more stable than what we are dealing with right now. So it's not good for the competitive market position in the United States, and therefore that is a drag on the economy. What about? Oh, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. No, I, I, uh, just to echo that, it used to be that the uh, you know the SEC and the American capital markets they didn't care about the rest of the world because. Um, you know, they thought it was sort of, you know, we were the deepest, most liquid markets out there. And, and, and the United States is, still has that. But um, uh, but increasingly, the rest of the world has catching up, um, uh, offers some regulatory relief in some cases that the United States doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real option. So um, you can easily see uh, uh, this, uh, this sort of, um, you know, flight to foreign climbs uh, happening. But what about also things like merger and acquisition activity? I mean, that would probably be that would be put on the shelf to a degree as well. Right, Jim? Yes. I mean, to the extent that you have the kind of uh, deal structure that uh, and, and, and the kind of companies involved that are going to require to be filed a registration statement that the, with the SEC, and particularly on deals where those are sensitive, uh, 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 this is going to slow things down. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not, and those are labor intensive as well. So that also takes money, fees away, uh, takes money out of the economy. Um, it's, it's having an adverse impact. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call, 844 942 7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio132 or my Twitter account, which is at danloney21. Joined in studio by David Zaring here at the Wharton School, James Cox uh, of Duke University joining us on the phone. We're talking about the government shutdown, specifically talking about the shutdown of the Securities and Exchange Commission and how that may impact uh, Wall Street and specifically the IPO market, which is a, a very important component to Wall Street. Uh, each and every year. David, go ahead. Uh Another consequence of this, and, and maybe this is uh, obvious in some ways, but um, uh, people were wondering if this was a year where the SEC was really going to roll out some 
some rules that would reflect what the chair of the SEC, Jay Clayton, you know, really wants to do during his his tenure as the you know chair of the agency. Um, and the rule writers are all furloughed, so they can't get that process going. So, um, uh, you know, whether you're viewing uh, the SEC's plans for the new year with trepidation or in, in anticipation, it's certainly the case that um, the policymaking that the agency had planned to engage in or that r- rumor had it the a- agency was planning to engage in, you know, it just can't go forward. There's just no way to there's just no way to you know, get the process rolling to put something in the Federal Register to get comments and, and to think about how to respond to those comments and, and actually execute new rules. Jim, you mentioned before, and I wanted to come back and touch on it again, is just the, the role that the SEC plays in terms of guidance for companies looking to do IPOs or in merger and acquisition activity and how vital that role, just that guidance, as you mentioned before, the minds that are within the SEC in terms of making these types of moves going forward. Well, the most you know, the most formal guidance is what I mentioned earlier, but it's not the only guidance. What I mentioned earlier is that when you file your uh, first round of disclosure documents for making a public offering with the SEC, you're an IPO. Those all get reviewed. You get reviewed by a team of lawyers, accountants, finance people, and if you're high tech, even engineers. And they review matters and they come back to you with questions about disclosure. Their concerns are not just about omissions and misstatements that may uh, be created, but the question about whether there's fair disclosure. And those are called letters of comfort. But more important than that, quite frankly, is before you even file that document, you establish you representing the issuer of the security, proposed issuer of the security, form a relationship with a point person in the uh, division of corporation finance uh, uh, in which you're having informal guidance. There's questions that come up about where you're putting things. And the reason you have that is not is that the rules that exist are are clear, but they're not as comprehensive as what the current lore and practices are at the SEC. Those lores and practices change almost like the pebbles of, on a beach, okay? change with the ebbs and flows of staff changing, and they have different ways of appro- approaching certain disclosure items. If we're talking about the high-tech area, there's been a lot of activity uh, in, for example, the accounting disclosures about the revenue recognition practices that high-tech firms uh, uh, may engage in, that they just have a separate sort of guidance. And so you're talking to the staff, perhaps in the accounting section of the uh, corporation finance or even the chief accountant's office at the SEC, to see about whether certain items are going to be acceptable, what kind of disclosures have to be made in the footnotes about those. And those are give-and-take conversations on the phone, and they're extraordinarily helpful uh, to the issuer and the counsel to the issuer in preparing these things. David? Uh, yeah, the um, it's also, it's a, it, going public, you know, it requires a relationship with the agency. And while the agency is furloughed, uh, those relationships can't be built or maintained, I think. Um, and so, um, that creates for companies that really, really want to go public this real dilemma, as, as Jim said. There's a way to do it um, uh, under Section 8A um, if the SEC and, – and this is rarely used um, when the SEC is in session because they review and go back and forth with the company. Yeah. Uh, but if the SEC doesn't say anything, you can go public after 20 days. But it's such a huge risk, um, uh, and it's the kind of thing that I think most lawyers would advise companies not to take. And so – uh, that really does create this sort of stop um, 
um, uh, for companies that would like to access the public markets. And you know, also, uh, as as Jim said, there there are people backing these companies who want to get their money out and can't. Yeah. So Jim, and if you can do this, please go ahead because when we think about an Uber as one example, uh, anybody following their news over the last few years knows that their valuation right now is incredibly high. I think in the neighborhood of sixty to seventy billion dollars. Exactly. Having this type of, of of process and whether or not Uber was going to file in January or or whenever, but let's just take it to the fact if they were going to file in January and they have this uh, inability now to file, the cost to them would be what financially. You know, it, it, uh, well, my feeling, David, would be, you know, you're yeah. probably talking an increments of a billion, uh, which is not uh, chump money. <laughs> <laughs> David? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 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 it's tough on them, though. I, I would say it's, even, it's toughest on the companies that we haven't really heard of. So Uber is an existing business with a strong balance sheet. They've been able to, they've shown an ability to get a ton of private financing. Um, this isn't good for them. I, you know, you know, you hear about um, employees who are looking forward to the the time where they can, you know, bid the company goodbye and go on to the next startup, and, yeah. and that's just not going to happen until they go public in six months after that. The um, the uh, employees can sell, um, but it, it's the um, the smaller tech companies yeah. that can go public that we don't know as well that don't have access to that kind of financing. They may need to go to market, um, uh, and their and their backers may need them to go to market, and they just can't do it. And some of those companies. Uh, and we hear the term the roadshow used where the IPO is concerned. Some of those companies end up having to go on these roadshows, basically going around the country, looking to drum up the support from the, the capital support that they would want to have going into an IPO. Yeah, that's definitely a part of the IPO process. Uh, it's um, uh, you know uh, something that I think every company goes through, and um, I, you assume that the, the, the roadshows have come to a close. Jim, your thoughts? Well, you know, another thought I was thinking about is just, again, how the shutdown has an impact on market risk. That is, you're pushing the offering further off. So Uber was, let's say, going to file in January. Now, maybe if they're lucky, they'll be filing in February or maybe even March. Catch that market window uh, later on. As you push things out, we do know that uh, a lot of speculation that the Fed at one time was saying it would raise interest rates uh, three yeah. times in 2019. Now, yep. that may change because of the slowdown in the economy, in part the slowdown because of the shutdown. But even if there were going to be two changes in the rate, what that does is it changes the whole valuation model because if the Fed rates go up, then you would expect that the risk premium for risky securities would go up. Nothing changes at Uber and other companies in terms of their operating performance at that time. And you know, just basic finance tells you that the price that investors would pay for Uber uh, in a area era of higher T-bill rates would be lower what you would lower for Uber price than it would be today with lower T bill rates. So you know you're up against that one, and so you know that, and I, I think that's a calculable amount of money. And again, I think that the impact on the Uber is going to be in the billions. But as David was saying, the real impact is going to be on the non Ubers who maybe miss this market window altogether, continue to have to raise money because they don't have the rich balance sheet that David 
was referring that Uber had um, um, a rich balance sheet to fall back on. So they have to raise capital in private markets. And we all know that those private markets carry a huge discount for um, uh, uh, the uh, lack of resellability of the security that one buys uh, in a private placement. So the huge impact is going to be is is is, is on the smaller firms right. uh, whose cost of capital goes up. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, David, for coming in. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Jim, nice talking to you. Thank you very much for Great. your time today. Great to be Thank you. David Zaring from here at the Wharton School. James Cox from uh, Duke University joining us on the phone. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.